Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at killerqueenspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Queens Podcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Hey, dudes. Hey, guys. Sup, guys? Oh, I did it again. I said, hey, dudes. You don't Always. like when I do that. Yeah. It's not that I don't like it. It's that it's stupid. Oh. See the so difference? So you do like it. Well, no. It's stupid. Yeah, like I don't it. like okay. it and it's stupid. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's an and, not an or. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, welcome to Killer Queens. Yeah. Yeah. If you've never been here before... Welcome. Welcome. This one is not for the faint of heart. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. And to be honest, every time we do this, it is about murder, so that probably none of them are, but... Right, right. It's just this one involves some porn-ish type things. Porn-ish? Mm-hmm. Right? It's like kind of porny. It's super porny, actually, and... I just recently started going to a new church and (laughs) some of my church uh, friends listen to this. And sorry, guys, I'm so sorry. You know what, though? Not talking about it doesn't mean that it's not real. And we're not saying that we do anything porny. Mm -mm. It's just talking about things that are in the world. Yeah. This guy is just so gross. I I just... I'm trying to make you feel better about it, but... Thanks, girl. Thanks. Um, All right. So before we get started, just a word to... Your mama. Okay. I was going to say like word to the wise, but that felt wrong. (laughs) No. Yeah. We have a Patreon. And in case you're not sure what a Patreon is, that is sort of like a membership, but sort of like we're just hanging. Yeah. The thing is, you can do as much or as little as you want to. It just helps us to make the show what it is. And it also helps us to be able to do this full time, which is a godsend for you guys to help us with this. But yeah, absolutely. And um, if you don't like listening to ads, then if you join the Patreon, all of the episodes are ad free. Yes. Plus, depending on the tier you join, we have two other shows that we put out every single week. So if you join at $10 or up, you get those shows as well. So you could be getting three shows a week. Well, and if it's a two-parter and you go ahead and listen to that second part immediately, that's four episodes a week. That's true. And that's exactly why I brought it up because this is a two-parter. So if at the end of the episode, you're like, well, gall darn it. I really want to hear that. Darn. 
Yeah. Then you're going to, you could go ahead and just be like, play. Mm-hmm. Contrary wise, yep. if you were to do that as well, the next week you'd only have two episodes to listen to. But you know what? That's your journey. You split them up the way you want to. You're your own boss. Well, yeah. And still, I mean, that gives you two episodes. Whereas if you weren't a patron, you'd only have the one. So you see. No, I'm, I'm, I, I hear it. I math. Tori, if you're going to try and tell people it sucks to be a patron, that's really kind of doing the opposite of what we're trying to do here. What? When did I say that? Just now. You're putting words in my mouth. You're putting words in my mouth. Okay. So anyway, you guys should join. We're biased, but it's the best. Yes. Just saying. And we have lots of reviews that are like, say that our Patreon is like best bang for your buck. Just saying. Yes. Because some people, I don't know who they are, apparently overpromise and sort of underdeliver, but we're mm-hmm. consistent with our content. So you're damn right. <laughs> All right, so I think we've avoided the porn as much as we can. Yeah, I think it's time to just to just get real nasty with it. You guys ready to go to Wonderland? Is it Wonderland or Wonderland? Wonderland. That's what I thought, but in some of the stuff I heard people like pronounce it as Wonderland, and it reminded me of that episode of Friends where Chandler like was Spider-Man. Like, yeah, it's not Bill Spider-Man. His name is Spider-Man. Like, yeah, no, that's what I was thinking too. <laughs> yeah, I was like, why do you guys keep calling it Wonderland Avenue? It's Wonderland. Trella, who, who can know? Who can know? In the hills of Laurel Canyon, there is an area known as Wonderland or Bill Wonderland, if you're mm-hmm. nasty, <laughs> based off the name of one of the main roads in the area, which is Wonderland Avenue. At 8763 Wonderland, I guess it, it came out that way. I guess it when sounds... you're saying it is a road name, it, it feels Wonderland. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. At 8763 Wonderland Avenue, there is a two-bedroom split-level home. This home is said to have been occupied by Paul Revere and the Raiders at one point when they were popular in the late 60s, early 70s. In this home's history, though, that will not be what people remember. Mm. Not even a little bit. Mm-mm. Okay. So in the late 70s and early 80s, the house at 8763 served as the main residence for the Wonderland gang. So this is Ron Lanius. He was the leader of the Wonderland gang and Billy Deverell was his right-hand man. To round out the gang, we have David Lind, Tracy Foggin. McCourt, and Joy... <laughs> He cuckolded me and Joy <laughs> Miller. Wow. I didn't even, the whole time looking into this case, I didn't even think about Lind Hagen. And here was David Lind just Why, served how up on a platter you, for yeah, me. How did you not <laughs> think about it at all? I know. That's, I'm he embarrassed. He me. Yeah. yeah. Ron Lanius was a Vietnam veteran with the Air Force. He was dishonorably discharged. Why? Why, you ask? Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. He was caught and convicted of smuggling heroin back from Vietnam to the U.S. in the bodies of deceased soldiers. That is, if I can try to see an up, no, I don't know if there's an upside here. It's resourceful. Okay. All right. Innovative. I I don't. Yeah, you are uh, very much like Catherine in Mixed Nuts. You could see the bright side of a plague right now. (laughs) I'm just trying to keep it upbeat. (laughs) Obviously. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about like salt of the earth kind of guy here, right? 
Clearly. Smuggling heroin in the bodies of deceased soldiers. Wow. wow. I mean. Mm-hmm. I see that one guy that brought puppies from somewhere and he filled their all of their bellies with like heroin and cocaine. Like balloons of it. Oh my God. Yes. What? Oh yeah. And they all died. <gasps> I know. Oh. Sorry. That's horrific. I know. The things that people will do to get drugs, you know, to smuggle drugs in. Yeah. That's awful. Mm-hmm. I hope that... Well, I don't even want to say what I hope happened to that person because it's not... It's just... You hope that justice was served. Mm-hmm. It's said that at the time of Ron Lanius's death that police investigators had 27 open murder cases, all of which they suspected him to be the perpetrator of. Jeez. He was yeah. busy. There were murders throughout California, mostly around the Sacramento area. He was charged with murder in 1974 for the murder of a known police informant, but those charges were dropped when the main witness for the prosecution was killed in a police shootout. Later that year, Lanius would be convicted of smuggling heroin and cocaine over the U.S.-Mexico border, and he would serve three years of an eight-year sentence. Ron was married to Susan Murphy, who was a drug addict herself. She wasn't officially part of the gang, but she was around the house all the same. Mm. Billy Deverell, Lanius's right-hand man, was also the voice of reason, like kind of sometimes, you know, <laughs> like, like compared to what, right? Right, exactly. Where Ron was a fearless, brazen person, Billy would try to reel him back in. So Billy was an overhead crane operator who was also a heroin user. He'd been arrested 13 times for his drug habit. And it was said that Billy experienced bouts of hating himself and his own actions and oftentimes said he would stop committing the crimes and doing the drugs he was doing. So it just seemed kind of like a powerless to stop it kind of thing, you know? Well, yeah. And he would go into these like little shame spirals, Mm -hmm. which is, I mean, a lot of times drug use and depression go hand in hand. Yeah, for sure. It is sad to see that like cycle because, Mm -hmm. you know, you can look at somebody and be like, I wonder what kind of actions, you know, this person would have taken had they not been struggling with addiction. Right. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Because I mean, it just, it turns you into somebody that you're not like yeah and no one is exempt from Mm -mm. possibly going down that road so yeah absolutely hey mel bry here gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty hey mikey if you're gonna puke find the popcorn bowl But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. (laughs) Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, But I'm going to get you that budget. Just as soon as... Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. David Lind. Hogan. 
met Ron Lonius when the pair served time in prison together. Lind Hagen was a heroin addict, biker, and member of the Aryan Brotherhood. Oh my. These are just, just uh, really amazing, upstanding role models, really. Yes, yes. Role models, yeah. In the early 80s, Lonius convinced Lind Hagen to come to LA and be part of the gang and help them run drugs. By the time the murders took place, Lind Hagen had been arrested in LA on a slew of charges, armed burglary, forgery, assault, and assault with intent to commit rape, to name a few. Wow. Piece of shit. Yeah. Lind Hagen was dating a 22-year-old Barbara Lee Easton Richardson. names. <laughs> A lot of names. I thought you were going to stop at some point, but they just Mm-mm. kept on going. Winchester Tenfieldville. <laughs> exactly. Who was much like Susan Lanius. She wasn't an official member of the gang, but again, she was like always around and she was there to support her drug habit. Good place to be if you have a drug habit, you know? Well, sure. Tracy McCourt was basically the little brother of the gang. Oh, he Tracy's was a boy. Yeah, I did not know that either. I, I'll be really honest. I got confused with the characters in the movie. I did too. So there's a movie called Wonderland. Wonderland. Exactly. If you nasty. Mr. Mm-hmm. and Mrs. Wonderland. And <laughs> yeah, there are a ton of people. There's a lot of, like every once in a while, I mean like David Linhagen and then other people are 100% introduced and you know who they are and you know their first and last names. Other people just kind of trickle in and you're like, well, who the hell? And they'll talk yeah. about, make mention of them. But you never know exactly who they were. No. So they so Josh Lucas is Lonius, right? Yes, Ronnie. he is. Yes. And then the guy from Oh Brother Where Art Thou, he is Billy Deverell. Or however you say his last name. Hang on, let me pull up IMDB here. Remember the the one who's like, come on in, boys, the water's fine. Oh my gosh. I and he's like, got like three names. I don't know his his names, but he's got three. Yeah, I was like, I thought I recognized him, but I could not place him. Well, and his accent was very different. He's from Oklahoma, I think, originally, which I thought, I mean, he he does a good job of like ironing his accent out for that movie. Also, Carrie Fisher was a surprise to me. Yes. Okay, and Dylan McDermott was David Lind. Yes. Again. And <laughs> <laughs> I did not, I was like, this guy looks so familiar to me. And then I had to look it up and be like, oh shit, that is Dylan McDermott. Let's see. What is her? Oh my God. Why can't I think of her name for anything? From Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead and The Sweetest Thing. Oh, Christina Applegate. She plays Josh Lucas's wife. Oh, snap. Wow. That is him. Tim Blake Nelson. Yeah. Wow. He looks so different. Mm -hmm. And Janine Garofalo was Joy Miller. Mm. And Lisa Kudrow played John Holmes's wife. They never got divorced um and yeah of course oh, and Val Paris Kilmer. Hilton is in it yeah oh you Barbie <laughs> Torella's Torella <laughs> acts like she's seen this movie but all of this is a surprise to her because she didn't actually finish the movie no I've never finished a movie I just fall asleep yeah she suffers from bouts of surprise I don't know narcolepsy is not the right word she just falls instantly asleep but she was voted as most likely to fall asleep sitting up Standing up. Or standing up by her, what, eighth grade class or something? Yeah, because I fell asleep at LBL. (laughs) I think it was sixth grade. Oh, and either way, it's ring. And I fell asleep standing up. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, so Tracy McCourt was basically the little brother of the gang. He was supposed to take part in the Eddie Nash job that the gang would perpetrate, but leading up to it, Lind Hagen took his gun and told him that he would be their getaway driver instead. I don't like this. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. But I guess one of us has to say it. Yeah. Okay. Lind Hagen called Tracy Titmouse Tracy. Yeah. I yuck. But was generally just basically his bitch. Mm. Is what he referred to him as. So Okay. I just I guess I just I'm having trouble understanding why anybody wants to hang out with people like this. Like it's kind of like that episode of It's Always Sunny where <laughs> Good day Mac to is use. trying to <laughs> Yeah. Where he's trying to be in the gang and they I forget what they call him, but I'm I know I can't say it. It's the P word hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. And it's just so gross. But he's like, come on, let me show you what I got. I can do this. Like he just wanted to show them like how how bad he could be or yeah, whatever. How tough he, is. he even bought he bought the velour tracksuit. He did. Mm-hmm. I mean, what else do they want from him? But mm-hmm. like, it's like when people are just constantly calling you names and being like, yeah, you're basically like, like I'm off the floor with you. I can't, I, I feel nothing for you. I don't care about you. I could take you or leave you. I would definitely leave you for dead. Wow. I think we got enough examples there. I don't like you, never have liked you. <laughs> I know. Wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up. <laughs> <laughs> like... Just why? Yeah, I have no idea. But that, I mean, my God, look at, treat a hot girl like dirt and she'll stick to you like mud. Like it, it's a tale as old as time. I guess that's true. I guess that is true. The final official member of the gang was Joy Miller, the girlfriend of Billy Deverell. She was the official leaseholder of the house on Wonderland Avenue. She has two adult age children and had left her husband, who was a divorce attorney. Mm. That seems... Difficult. Unexpected. Like, yeah, like, seems like he knows what he's doing. You're not going to win that one, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, eesh. she became an addict and immersed herself in the drug culture, which is how she ended up with this ragtag group. By 1981, she had seven arrests on her record. She had beaten breast cancer and had a double mastectomy. Wow. That's a lot of stuff in a seven-year period. Mm-hmm. Or, I'm sorry, it was seven arrests in however many years. Yeah. We actually don't know how many years, so... Yeah. I made that up. But but it was a lot to deal with. Yeah, that's a lot to deal with. And again, like, this just illustrates the whole drug addiction is a respecter of no person. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just family people. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your history is. It can happen to anybody. It's equal opportunity. It does not matter, yeah. At the time in the Laurel Canyon area, there were a few different dealers. For the most part, they didn't bother each other. There were the occasional run-ins, but mainly they all had their own territory and they stuck to it. They were rarely, if ever, violent with one another. The Wonderland gang did a little bit of everything to get money and drugs. One of their main hustles was to break into people's homes with fake badges and pretend to be police, even dressing in fake uniforms. They would hit other drug dealers in the area or whoever they could get some cash from in the area. They would take any money and drugs they could get their hands on for their personal use. When they run out, they do it again and again and again. 
In a world of bad people and drug dealers, the Wonderland gang were known in the area as outlaws. Even the scumbags thought that they were scumbags. Jeez. I mean, they're fleas. They're the fleas on, wait, amoebas on fleas on rats. <laughs> That's what it is. But maybe if you just go fleas on a couple more times, well, it'll you're come the you. one who started the fleas on thing. And I was like, all right, I'm going to make this work. But really, it was amoebas on fleas on rats. Yeah, I was like, I know that there's amoebas and I know that there's fleas, but... Yeah, they're too low for even the dogs to bite. It's fine. Exactly. Yeah. And fleas no. on. <laughs> you're just like, no, it's fleas on. No. Fleas. No. It's fleas on. It's like um, on that movie Role Models where that guy's trying to do Kumbaya and he just keeps do like Kumbaya. Okay. No, 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 no. Kumbaya. No, 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 no. He just, it's the same thing over and over. That's how I felt. Yep. That's how I felt too. Listening to it. <laughs> In mid-1981, the house on Wonderland Avenue was that house on the street. It was unkempt and in disrepair. The paint was cracked and chipping. What little yard it had was completely overgrown and not taken care of at all. I guess the HOA wasn't really a a big deal back then, huh? Yeah, I would think not. The Wonderland HOA is Mm -hmm. out to lunch. (laughs) There was a worn down rusted fence with a gate that had an electronic lock on it controlled from inside the house. The Wonderland area of Laurel Canyon was also the known residence of some popular musical artists, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, and Jim Morrison, to name a few. At one point, Orson Welles also lived in the area, and in 1982, a year after the murders, Governor Jerry Brown had a home there. Wow. I mean... Can you imagine being like Joni Mitchell and like looking out your window and being like, that fucking house? (laughs) I know. She's like, I'm going to write a really sad song about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? Joni Mitchell, some people love her and true love lasts a lifetime. That's exactly right. (laughs) So I think we should talk about uh, who Eddie Nash is next. Okay. So Eddie originally was born Adele Garib Nasrael in Palestine in the city of, and I think I said it wrong, Nasrallah in Palestine. Okay. In the city of Ramallah, just outside of Jerusalem. So before the creation of Israel, Nash's family is said to have owned almost 50 hotels. In the early 1950s, Nash left a refugee camp after his brother-in-law was gunned down by Israel Defense Force soldiers. So he migrated to the United States with only $7 to his name. Wow. It's incredibly impressive. I know. I feel like people who, like, that takes just so much... Gumption? Yes, and like courage and... Oh, yeah. Well, see, and that's the thing. That's why I do not understand why people are so hateful. Like, you know, when, and I don't want to get political, but when a topic, and I'm sure it's never going to change, but when the big topic was people hating on refugees or immigrants or whatever, and I'm like, look at how much effort and work they put into making, like, I have never been so driven. It's amazing, (laughs) right? right? But also, like, it's so scary. It's like, I wouldn't even move. Oh, yeah. No, I wouldn't move across the country. He moved all the way with probably without knowing 
much English maybe, or, you know, like she didn't know anybody. Yeah. Not knowing anybody. It's like, if I did move, I would move somewhere where I know somebody where I definitely already have a job lined up, like all the things. And he's just like, I have $7. I'll make it work. Yeah. Well, I'm sure he, what he thought every morning when he got up was if you want to be somebody and you want to go somewhere, you better wake up and pay attention. Oh my gosh. He did. Yes, he did. Of course he did. And he, he did become somebody. Yes, he did. Let's keep yeah. going, shall we? Yeah. Yeah. So Nash quickly found work in Hollywood as an actor and stuntman as he was an expert horseman. Or horseman? <laughs> was he a man who was also a horse or was he? I think they prefer to be called centaurs. Oh, okay. He was an expert centaur. Mm-hmm. He also had a brief guest spot on an episode of the Western, The Cisco Kid, as the aptly named Nash. By the time the 60s rolled around, Eddie moved on from being an actor and started a hot dog stand on Hollywood Boulevard called Beef's Chuck. Torella, you could get really on board with something like that. Torella loves a hot dog stand. I was like a man after my own heart. I love hot dog stands. I once dated a guy for several months just because when he He picked me up at the bar, he told me he had a hot dog stand. Oh. I said band. (laughs) I don't know why. A hot dog band would be cool too if you just sang all songs about hot dogs and dressed up like hot dogs. Hmm. Hmm. I could get down with that too. It's like the hot beats. Dogs, so much fun. <laughs> that's like the only hot dog song you know. Well, that's yeah. not true. I wish I was an Oscar Mayer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I know two songs. You know two hot dog songs. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, it's not a super long EP, but it could work. Totally, totally. So he worked tirelessly at the stand, doing everything from waiting tables, cleaning daily, taking orders, and cooking. Eddie Nash was not above doing any type of work, did it all. Mm -mm. So by the 1970s, Eddie had grown his empire significantly. He held close to 40 liquor licenses, owned several nightclubs, restaurants, and real estate. At the time, it was valued around $30 million, but worth roughly $130 million today. When he opened a nightclub, he tended to focus on a section of the population that was underserved. He marketed towards the LGBTQ community, teenagers, and people of color, etc. He purchased PJ's Club, which he renamed to Starwood. Oh my God, we had a Starwood. We did have a Starwood. I don't think it's the same though. No. No. But it sounds like a good time either way. Yeah, I like it. This place is significant because it would be called instrumental in the early careers of several bands in the area, like Van Halen, The Go-Go's, Quiet Riot, and The Runaways. Motley Crue actually played their first show at Starwood, and Aerosmith played there before they were called Aerosmith. They were known as Dr. J. Jones and the Interns. Stop it. I did not know that. Okay, I didn't either, first off. And second off, I just listened to Dr. Jones. Dr. Jones, Aqua. Dr. Jones, calling Dr. Jones. Wow. That's a great song. It's a great song. Wake up now. I had no idea that it was about Indiana Jones. <laughs> what? Yeah. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> really changes things for you, huh? It really does. I, I was like singing. A... You could still. I don't give a fuck about Indiana Jones. Well, I mean, you don't have to. You could just care about Dr. Jones. Okay. Is Indiana Jones a doctor? Who the fuck? I mean, we're going to get <laughs> massacred for not knowing this. I don't know. We really are. I feel like for Aerosmith, going from Dr. J. Jones and the interns, it's a good change. 
It's a good change. It's a good change. So the Starwood would be shut down in 1981 due to excessive violations of underage drinking and noise complaints. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, is it my old Fred underage drinking? (laughs) When Eddie was owner of the Starwood, the LAPD would average 25 drug busts per month there. Ooh, that's a lot. That's a A lot. lot. That's a lot. Once Eddie Nash got a little money in his pocket, he also developed a drug habit. Reportedly, over a six-year period, see, now we know how many years, uh, Nash spent $1 million per year on drugs. That would be around $4.3 million today, or $12,500 per day. Wow. Oh, my gosh. A million dollars a year just on drugs. Almost $13,000 a day on drugs. Holy shit. Again, I go back to, you know, do I really need the guacamole this time? (laughs) Do I not, you know, can I go without it? No, exactly. $12,000 a day. Oh my gosh. Yeah, money was obviously no object to him. But I do think, you know, when you, something's really important to you, Mm -hmm. rational thought sometimes goes out the window. Yeah, that's true. So that is all just to say that he had a big habit and he had the money to fund it. His drug of choice was freebasing cocaine. And this is typically done with a glass pipe and a piece of clean, heavy copper used to base or used as a base to melt the cocaine down to a vapor. This method typically transforms the blood, the blood, the drug to close to a 100% purity. It seems strong. Very. I would think that that could get you in major trouble if, you know, because you keep doing more and more and more and then that doesn't cut it. So then you just keep upping it and upping it. And then, right. Yeah, I would think that'd be a pretty effective way to possibly overdose. Mm -hmm. So due to his drug abuse, Nash's sinus cavity was gone. He had a metal plate in his head and one of his lungs was removed. Jesus Christ. Holy moly. How did this guy stay alive? What's holding him together? Mm Mm-mm. Another thing he started doing with all the drug use was refer to himself in the third person. And he would refer to himself as the Nash, which is always cool and never weird. I kind of love it. (laughs) He's like, hey, man, what are you doing today? He's like, the Nash said to himself. (laughs) I don't think he talked like he was the narrator of a book. I think he did. You don't think he did? No, I think he just said... The Nash wants some cookies, like um, like Cookie Monster. <laughs> Yo, Pops, it's the Nash. Yes, he, when he called Papa John's, he would say, Yo, Pops, this is the Nash. <laughs> and they're like, who the fuck is the Nash? Yeah. Cocaine is a hell of a drug, you know? Uh, yeah, definitely. So all of the drug use caused the Nash to be paranoid. <laughs> so he, of course, hired a bodyguard. Gregory Diles was a karate expert and convicted felon. He was also a monster of a man weighing over 300 pounds. He also had a temper to match. And once he was matched with Eddie Nash, the pair became known wide and far across the Sunset Strip. It said that one day, Dials chased someone out of one of the strip clubs that Nash owned, the Kit Kat Club. I've heard of the Kit Kat Club because probably as a kid, I was like, oh, delicious, give me a break. I know, and now I'm like... It's referencing something else, right? Is it referencing something that we already talked about with the P-word hands? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. You think so? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know many other Kit Kats, you know what I'm saying? 
I will say though, I bought a whole bag of miniature Kit Kats and I have a bunch of them in my purse for oh, snacking. That's great. Not that kind of Kit Kat. The 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 real ones. The the the, the candy. Break me off a piece of that Kit Kat bar. Oh God. Can't do it now, can you? Nope. Mm-mm. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okie dokie. So he chased the man down the road, and when the man jumped into his car, Dials emptied his 38 special into the car. The car was across Santa Monica Boulevard. Dials emptied his gun into a vehicle across six lanes of traffic. <laughs> That's just to give you an idea of how the pair operated when they got together. They took no shit from anyone, and apparently they did not think things through. <laughs> so it kind of... He's like, I'm gonna get you. And then just like <laughs> shoots across six fucking lanes of traffic. Like, are you serious right now, sir? I know. This is not the 10th... Fast and Furious movie. No. Dials, like, you can't just do that kind of stuff. Exactly. There's other people around, dude. Did Mm -hmm. nobody die from that? Who the fuck knows? I have no idea. I mean, that's... Maybe it's like he thought he was doing that, but it was like that Workaholics episode where (laughs) Andy... (laughs) I don't know why, but I imagine him singing like David from the real world. Yes. Oh, Come on, be my baby tonight. (laughs) And he thinks he's doing it, but he's like, like, yeah, exactly. So it kind of goes without saying, but Nash didn't make his money just from owning clubs and real estate. He was also one of the biggest drug dealers in the area at the time. What? I know. I did not see that Shocking, I know. During one of his many drug busts at the Starwood, Police confiscated a cardboard box with 4,000 counterfeit quaaludes. The box was marked for sale at box office in Blue Marker. Nash sold everything people would want. Pills, cocaine, crack cocaine, heroin, etc., etc. At the height of his career, many people would consider Eddie Nash to be one of the biggest drug dealers on the West Coast. Wow. So he's like, um, here's your tickets. And... We have a very special offer for you right now. (laughs) It's only good for the next 10 minutes. Yes. You can get 100 quaaludes. Yes. It's probably calling people and being like, we need to contact you about our deal on quaaludes if you get a chance. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like one step above your car's extended warranty. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. On June 29th, 1981, Eddie Nash and the Wonderland... Mr. and Mrs. Wonderland, the gang, Mm -hmm. would have a run-in that would set off a chain reaction of events leading up to the death of most of the Wonderland gang itself. The gang had an inside man, a friend of Nash's, who they used to get into his home. They gave the man $400 to go and buy drugs from Nash, but while he was there, they wanted him to unlock a patio door so they could use it to get in and rob the place. The goal of the robbery was cash, drugs, and a floor safe that Nash had in his closet, but also to get some antique guns that the gang had stole, had sold to Nash in exchange for drugs. But what we need to do right now is take a little detour and talk about the Wonderland gang's mole. <laughs> okay. Oh, I'm so glad this is your part. Yeah. I, damn it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So enter John Holmes. In the 1960s and 70s, there was a sexual awakening that spread throughout the world, not the least of which was making adult films mainstream. Wow. During the 70s, public figures everywhere admitted to watching adult films, from the vice president to Jackie Kennedy. 
In the middle of this movement was a skinny, curly-haired guy named John Holmes. That's that's the nicest way you could describe him. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I don't think that that really, that doesn't do him justice all the way. <laughs> but mm-mm, it's mm-mm. nice. He's just gross. Just mm-hmm. so gross. And the fact that Val Kilmer played him in the movie was like, you're welcome, John Holmes. That's what I'm saying because I've definitely had thoughts. I think everybody, well, I don't know if everybody has, but there have been different times in my life where I'm like, man, I wonder who would play me in a movie. You know, like if if there was a movie about my life for whatever reason, which would be the most boring movie of all times and no one would watch it. But who would play me? And I'm like, please let it be somebody that's a good looking, attractive person. Because what you don't want to have happen is... I'm trying to think of someone that's awful that I'd be fine with throwing under the bus, but I can't think of anybody. You know what I mean? Like you'd be mm-hmm. like, that's who you got to play me, really? I can't think of anybody either. Why? Because we're nice. That's not true. <laughs> well, I don't know why, but I was always like, just as a an example for somebody that you 100% not want, I'd be like, yeah, they were like, okay, Rosie O'Donnell, that's who we see playing you. Oh. I'm like, yeah. well, I mean, okay. I don't get it, but okay. (laughs) Yeah, that wouldn't be very nice, would it? It wouldn't feel great. Yeah, it's just, that's a stretch here. Val Kilmer. But I mean, you know, gotta do what you gotta do, right? Yes. So John Holmes was born John Estes in the small rural town of Asheville, Ohio. Holmes's childhood was, quote, normal for the most part, although his parents were divorced. When he was 15, John left home and enlisted in the army with written permission from his mother. He spent most of his military career in West Germany and was honorably discharged in 1963. Once he was out of the army, he relocated to the Los Angeles area and held several odd jobs here and there. One of these jobs was an ambulance driver, which is where he met Sharon. Jebeni? Mm-hmm. Jebenini? Jebenini? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I was like, if I just keep saying it. Jebenini. Jebenini. I don't know. Jeben. Jebenini. I don't know. I don't either. That's where I met Sharon. Okay. Yeah. Sharon G. Yeah. They would fall in love and marry in August of 1965, which was after John's 21st birthday. John would bounce from job to job, and eventually he got a job as a, quote, model for adult magazines and pictures. And like, here's the thing. (laughs) Here's the thing. This guy, I love, okay, so Mark did the script for this and research. Oh, yes, thank you. Yes, thank you so very much. The way that he put this, because I remember this is the 70s. He says, there's no sense in beating around the bush. (laughs) Oh, all of the bushes. So many bushes. It's like we're going back to um, Wild Wild Country with those bushes, man. Oh my God. So many bushes. Yeah. Trell, go ahead. I won't take this moment away from you. Oh, thank you. Okay. So he got the job because of the size of his member. Is that worse? His disco stick. (laughs) Yay, I like that. Okay. (laughs) Does that make it better? (laughs) Yeah, it does. So he always claimed it was 13 inches. Sharon says she measured it though, and it was 10, but he says 13 inches. Well, I mean, he rounded up. I don't know. I mean, 10's nothing nothing to sneeze at. No. And 
here's the thing. You can Google it and see it for yourself. You cannot unsee what you find though, is the thing. Yeah, you'll, it'll, that is a mental image that will be burned into your brain forever. And for being honest and not dramatic, it'll wake you up at night. Yeah, I hope BetterHelp is a sponsor this week because I need therapy now. 100%. I mean, yeah, again, you just can't unsee it. So, I mean, just do what you will with that information. Mm hmm. mm hmm. Yeah. But apparently, like, I had never heard of him. And apparently, he's like the porn star. Yeah, like the biggest ding dong to ever walk the earth. And. Oh my God. Like, it's a thing. <laughs> but, like, who says ding-dong? I thought it would be fun. It, it, I mean, I laughed. Yeah, I'm having a great time. Okay, good. But, like, I never heard of him, but all of the guys that work at my husband's shop have heard of him because, you know, they're all in the generation where he ha- would have been, you know, popular. It was like, I guess it's like how we all know who Ron Jeremy is now. Yeah, but you know what is interesting? As much as I know him and, like, what, like the rumors or whatever, you know, stories. I've never even, Mm-mm. I've never been so curious as to look that up because I've seen the man attached to it. Yeah, I guess for me, I was just very confused about John Holmes because he is literally no bigger than your mom's Jack Russell. So well, I was confused as to like... It's a kickstand, you know? Basically, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just really, again, you can't unsee it. It's just it disproportionate not, to yeah what it's attached to. And it just seems not okay. You think it's like... It would hurt. Yeah, it doesn't... Yeah. I don't know. Let's move on. Okay. All right. So it starts out with photo shoots, and then he starts appearing in films. And Sharon wasn't a huge fan of this, obviously. Well, that's her husband. (laughs) Right. But John was like, look, Sharon, if I was a carpenter... I would use a hammer as a tool. So that's basically what I'm doing, right? Like I have been given this tool, okay? okay? Big tool and I for have you. To, mm-hmm, and I have to use it for my job, okay? <laughs> and you would understand if it was any other tool. So what's the big deal about this one? It's like, no, you don't have to use that tool. There are a million other kinds of jobs that you could get <laughs> if you really wanted to. It's not like this is your only shot. Well, but I think you're forgetting though, Tori. What you're forgetting is that this tool, yeah, okay, big tool for was you, was a mm-hmm. gift from God. From God. Um, hmm. mm. yeah, I feel like Sharon was probably like, "You're full of shit," but okay. Like, I don't know. I don't know it how. Just sounds- like something that someone would say to their significant others to be like, hey, is it cool if I go bang other people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also the notoriety, like you, you know, you want to, I personally, and there's nothing against it. I do what you want to do. Sex work, mm-hmm. real work. Like, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, I don't understand what it would be like to be like, hey, I, I would be interested in doing that. Yeah. That's not where I'm, where I'm at and ever will be. No, but, and also John Holmes is very manipulative. He's a gaslighter. Yeah, he's narcissistic and definitely takes advantage of exploiting people who care about him, their feelings. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And 
also, I say all of that in the same knowing that I have never had a big, ginormous wiener. So I don't know if that would feel different for me. Mm -hmm. Maybe it would be one of those things where it's like, oh, dear God, I've got to stop everything that I'm doing and just focus on this. (laughs) I can do nothing else anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. Okay. So he starts in the adult film industry and he only has one vice. He didn't drink. He didn't do drugs. He loved to smoke cigarettes. Don't we all? Victoria. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> While it was an industry that was making money during the time, the adult film industry was still not legal in the eyes of the courts. So during this time in the film business, John would be arrested for, quote, pimping and pandering. Hmm. To avoid charges, John became an informant for the LAPD. His handler in the LAPD later said that, Quote, it was a pleasure working with him in regards to Holmes. Hmm. I don't know why, because everybody else had a super hard time with him. He was a dick to everybody. Well, and he was a slippery motherfucker. Like, you couldn't get him to focus, it felt like. But maybe that's after the drug use, so. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Despite being an informant, Holmes became the king of the porn industry during that time. John Holmes was was to the adult film industry what Elvis Presley was to rock and roll. He was simply the king. And that is a quote from cinematographer Bob Voss. At the height of his popularity, John was said to be making around $3,000 per day. His career, however, didn't jive well with Sharon, who at one point said that she wouldn't divorce him, but their marriage was basically over. See, that was so interesting to me because I'm like, okay, obviously there was still love there. And they had a caring, a a genuine caring about each other. But like, why continue to be a placeholder for somebody? Like, just cut it loose. Yeah, I don't, I don't get that either. But I mean, it's like, like you said, they did still seem to really care for each other. So it was almost like they were just like BFFs. Mm -hmm. But she didn't, she didn't need the romance part of it anymore, I guess. I don't know. I guess. I don't know. Because I don't I don't think she was with other people. It didn't appear to be that way, but we didn't get into a ton of background on her at all. So yeah, that's true. Who can know? As John got more and more famous, he also started to experiment with different drugs and he started drinking. It got to the point that he couldn't even film a complete scene without having to run off to the bathroom and do drugs. He had become a full-blown addict. A huge side effect of his drug use was that it made him impotent. Yikes. And that's definitely when your job is to mm-hmm. be able to perform and you can't. Right. How That's a that's, big deal. Yeah, that's a vicious cycle. Yeah. You can't work to pay for your drug habit and you can't do your work without your drug habit. Right. Yeah. That's He's got himself in a real pickle, mm-hmm. you know? Big old pickle. Big old pickle. So once the news about his, the pickle he got himself in. Well, do you mean how the air left his tires type of thing? Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. Once the news spread about that, he became less and less sought after. So this is a huge hit to his income. And then he starts looking for other things to do to make money. One of his favorite things was to go to an airport and hang around the luggage pickup. He would grab luggage, 
take off with it, selling whatever he could for cash and getting drugs. That seems like a lot of work. Like what? Normally, what do people put in their luggage? Like you might have a little bit of jewelry in there or something, but are are we talking about like valuable, like a lot of valuable things? I wouldn't imagine like somebody's clothes and shoes are going to net you a lot of money. Unless you pick a really, really expensive looking like a Louis Vuitton suitcase set or something like that. You know, like some some really rich, wealthy woman that would have a bunch of very expensive yeah. articles of clothing. But yeah, other than that, it's like, wow, cool. Enjoy my Walgreens toothbrush. Exactly. Yeah. Like, or maybe he sold the actual luggage itself. Like you said, if it was an expensive brand, but still, I don't know. That just seems like seems like a lot of work for probably a low a return. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Gotta do what you gotta do. I guess so. The Paul Thomas Anderson movie, Boogie Nights, is said to be loosely based off the life of John Holmes. I have never seen that movie either. I haven't either. But I think, is it Mark Wahlberg in it? I have no idea. I thought John Travolta was in it. No. No, John Travolta isn't in it. It is Mark Wahlberg. It is. A lot of people, a lot of people with three word names, William H. Macy, John C. Riley, Philip Seymour (laughs) Hoffman. Oh my God. Yeah. That is a lot of people with three names. Told you. It was also during this time that John met 15-year-old Don Schiller. He's at least, let's say, what, 24? At least. Yeah. He would give her drugs and alcohol, and eventually the two started, quote, dating. Disgusting. Yeah. And yeah, what do you... Basically, what happened is he got her addicted drugs and groomed her. Mm-hmm. Like... There's no other way to describe what he did. He's the sexual predator. It's exactly. Disgusting. Well, yeah. I mean, at that point, like, there's no way that you meet a 15-year-old and she has any consent in what's going on here. There's just no way. Right. Yeah. John would eventually pimp Don out for drugs and money when they needed it. And of course, like, we've seen this so many times. And that's actually what, like, most sex trafficking is, is, you know somebody in a relationship and then them being like, hey, you know, you only have to do it for a little while. And then once we get the money, I can afford a ring or I can afford or we can afford a house or, you know, blah, 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 blah. Just do it for a little while. Mm -hmm. You're doing it. You know, we're doing this for us. Yeah. And meanwhile, he doesn't have to do anything. No. And he could very easily. I'm sorry. I just have a hard time believing because it might not be what you want to do, but like McDonald's hiring. Mm Mm-hmm. All kinds of places that you might not want to work. You could be a janitor somewhere. You could be, you could do anything. Right. And then, you know, maybe not do a bunch of drugs. Well, not sex traffic somebody that you're supposed to love, but. Well, and is also a minor. That Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just, well, it just makes me so mad. And like, she's 15. So of course she's like, I mean, she, the sun rose and set on John Holmes for her, mm-hmm. you know? Well, she did, did. everything oh for him. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just really sad. Yeah, exactly. And he prayed on that. Mm-hmm. 100%. And it just makes me sad because I know that like when, I'm sure if you're in an addiction, you're powerless to stop it. I'm not saying it'd be so easy as to just stop. But how many problems were caused by this addiction? You know, like. Right. It's impossible to stay afloat after that. Yeah. Totally. Sad. It is. It's very sad. So John, being a drug addict, would eventually make his way to the Wonderland gang to get his drugs. They knew who he was and kept him around for the novelty of it. 
Lonnie has treated John like a circus freak and would frequently tell him to expose himself at parties for the novelty, but he also gave John drugs. Even though John kept coming back, he resented Lonnie's for treating him like that. Eventually, John would get into a big hole financially with the Wonderland gang. He was in such a deep hole that some people have said that the gang was just going to kill him. So to clear up the debt, John said he could help them rob someone else he knew. Someone who would definitely have enough money and drugs to make things right. In the late 70s, early 80s, John was introduced to the Nash. And he was like, hey, John, nice to meet you. This is the Nash. But he's talking about himself. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Because he's such a weirdo. You're welcome to be introduced to the Nash. Yeah, exactly. The thing about Eddie Nash was that he loved the adult film industry. He would invest in them if they needed money. He'd rent space to them for filming. Literally, whatever he could do to be a part of it, he did. When he met (gasps) Eddie Nash is like, I want to be part of your (laughs) world. Wow, you really brought The Little Mermaid right into it. Okay, but we needed to lighten this little shit up, okay? Because there's only so much of the Nash that is going to be funny, okay? That's true, that's true. When he met John Holmes, he was literally on cloud nine. He was like, the Nash is so excited to be meeting you right now. But tell, but talk about what uh, what John Holmes, you have to, you have to say it. You have to say it. It's John Holmes's on-screen persona. I'll say it if you want me to. I don't care. I just hate it, but... Yeah, his his name on screen was Johnny Wad. Yeah. Two Ds, Johnny Wad. Prematurely shot his wad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then after a while, he couldn't even shoot his wad no matter what. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Nash would give Holmes drugs and let him sleep and hang out at his house whenever he wanted. The Nash had a way of testing people, and if you passed, you were in. So he'd bring people into his house, leave them in a room with piles of money and drugs, and then he'd watch from behind a two-way mirror, which he had set up all over his house, which is disgusting. Well, he was a very paranoid person. Also, just a freak. Exactly. Like, it it reminds me very much of Lou Pearlman and the tanning bed situation. Oh, God. I forgot about that. Yep. And poor little Aaron Carter. Carter. Just does not believe that he watched him change. But no, he did. He he still thinks of him as like Uncle Louie. Yeah, it's sad. So once John passed this test, they became friends. So now John is like me in the Nash hanging out every day. <laughs> well, you BFFs. know, the Nash was like, oh my God, me and Johnny Watt, love him. Mm-hmm, yeah. He's like, oh my God, Johnny Watt in the Nash. <laughs> Did he like like carve it into a tree? Yeah, Johnny Watt in the Nash. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> Nash would often refer to John as his brother, mm. even though John would end up owing him tons of money for the drugs he fronted him. And he always gave John more drugs and let him, quote, put it on his tab, knowing that John would never have the money to pay him back. He just so loved him. A, why have a tab? Yeah, I don't, that doesn't even make any sense. Put it on the tab. Yeah. All right. So here's the basic plan that John pitched to the Wonderland gang to pay back his debt. John said that he would go to Eddie Nash's house under the pretense of buying drugs, which I'm sure he was like, I'm not even going to pay for. (laughs) So while there, he would buy some drugs, 
then unlock the patio door and leave. After that, he would give the all clear to the gang and they would roll in with badges and guns and do what they did best. On June 29th, 1981, Ron Lanius gave John $400 to go and told him to make it happen. John went to Nash and made the buy. John was extremely nervous and he actually left Nash's house without unlocking the door. Like he had one job, man. He (laughs) returned a second time and then he unlocked the door to the patio like he had planned, but then he had to hang out for a bit. So they weren't like, well, what the hell did you just come back here for for five seconds? After a while, he said he needed to go and went back to Wonderland. Once he arrived there, the gang had all partied it up and did enough drugs to make themselves pass out. John hung out for a while until the gang began to wake up, which was a few hours later. (laughs) They're like killing it, man. Yeah. So John was worried and paranoid that the door would have been locked by now, so he convinced them to let him go back and check the door once again. Once back at Nash's, Holmes purchased some crack cocaine and made sure the door was unlocked and notified the gang that they were a go. So what should have taken, let's say, all of, (laughs) I don't know, an hour and a half has now gone six and a half hours because everybody got too wasted and fell asleep. They fell asleep and then he's like, damn it, now I gotta go back and check the door again because I'm positive somebody's locked it by now. Exactly, it's just so silly. Yeah. So Lanius, Deverell, and Lind. Hagen were the ones who committed the actual burger burglary on Nash's <laughs> I don't want to talk burglary. about it. I don't want to, I'm I that sounds delicious right now by the way. It really does. They're the hamburglers. <laughs> They're the ones who did the actual hamburglary on Eddie oh. Nash's home. Tracy McCourt served as a getaway driver for the gang and a lookout. Before the gang set out for the night, they dipped their fingers in liquid band-aid so they didn't leave any fingerprints. They had their fake badges and guns ready to go. Does that actually work? I have no idea. I've used liquid band-aid before, but never for that. Yeah, yeah I haven't used it I mean, it, it creates a either. film, you know, like it would make sense, I guess. Seems like it'd be easier to just put gloves on. <laughs> Why don't you just put gloves on? I don't know, Torella. Maybe it's really hot there that time of year and they didn't want to be all sweaty. I don't know. <laughs> They're like... How in the world can we not leave fingerprints? Oh my God. And they're like, I know. (laughs) We'll saw off the edges of our fingers (laughs) so that we don't leave fingerprints. Exactly. Just put a glove on, you (laughs) idiot. Well, whatever, Torella, you weren't there, okay? And you don't know what they were thinking or going through in that moment. So you're right. So they busted in the house through the door that John left unlocked. They were immediately confronted by Gregory Dials. The gang had the element of surprise on their side, though, and they were able to get Dials on the ground and handcuffed him. Shortly after, they were able to get Nash and handcuffed him as well. When they had both handcuffed, they went in on Nash and demanded that he tell them where all the money and drugs were. In the commotion of all of this, Lanius accidentally bumped into David Lind. Hagen. Which caused Lind. Hagen. To accidentally shoot Gregory Dials in the back, injuring him, but non-life-threatening. That's a major shucks daisy. <laughs> it's like, could you not just like accidentally drop something on the floor, but you had to shoot somebody in the back? Like, yeah, that's that's a whoopsie daisy if I've ever seen one. <laughs> exactly. I feel like they're just like the worst. <laughs> they are. They're the worst. They're the worst at this. So ridiculous. And then like one of them is like, oh no, I washed my hands. Now my fingerprints are everywhere. <laughs> Idiots. Exactly. So upon hearing the shot, Nash started to pray for himself, the Nash, and his children, but he was cut short by the gang telling him to open the safe. 
He's like, dear God, please don't let anything happen to the Nash. The Nash is really, really scared right now. <laughs> exactly. The Nash does not want to die here today. Yeah, and please, please let the Nash see his kids again. <laughs> XOXO, the Nash. The Nash. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the Nash gave up his cash and drugs, and it is said <laughs> that the gang made off with about $1.3 million in drugs, which cocaine, heroin, and quaaludes cash and the antique guns they had sold to Nash plus jewelry. It was a great short-term victory for the gang, but would ultimately lead to their demise. Are quaaludes still a thing? Who the fuck knows? I don't (laughs) know. And I'm not looking it up because I'm not getting red flagged. I'll be like, quaaludes for sale. (laughs) Yeah, just Google that. Where can I buy quaaludes? Right? No. (laughs) I know. Yeah. Maybe on Facebook I Marketplace. I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great That's a great idea. Yeah, I, I bet wanna, somebody in my neighborhood has quaaludes. I don't want to travel too far. <laughs> yeah, I've only heard quaaludes in like 80s movies. Well, yeah, I mean, they're very... Because I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, they were a pretty big thing. Like Marilyn Monroe was doing them as well. So... Really? I think. I need like a history of quaaludes. Yeah. But maybe we could just like... Fax the Nash and ask him. Totally. Just kidding. I know he's Yeah, they were, Quaaludes were first, first, ooh. Oh. Firths. <laughs> Firths. <laughs> the next word is synthesized. And I just did, I just really Firth. went with that. Yeah, exactly. They were first synthesized in... India in the 1950s and were introduced to, into America in the 1960s. Mm. Yeah. And then what about now? I guess so today a quaalude is an illegal drug that goes by many names such as Mandy's and Quack and that was last year. So that they oh, still so they, are they still, still yeah, they still have them apparently. And I've never heard of drugs, Mandy's or Quack either. No. The Drugs that largely replace quaaludes as sedatives and sleep aids, like benzodiazepines and their near cousins like Ambien. Oh. Oh, so that's all it is? It's just a basically like a sleeping pill? A sedative. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> so is it like a roofie? Is that what people used it for? Like I thought... Well, I remember because Marilyn Monroe would take them because she couldn't sleep. And I think Elvis oh. did too. I thought they were... I thought they made you like feel high or something like a pain pill yeah but they just make you go right to sleep apparently i I really don't know though but that makes more sense why they use them in wolf of wall street oh sure i've never watched trying to drug people what i've never watched it oh i don't remember if i liked it or not honestly (laughs) okay so that's all right that's it that's it we've had a history of the quaalude Mm -hmm. there will be a test next part Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, again, so... To sum up. Yeah, this one wasn't so murdery, mostly porny. The second one is going to be more murdery. And less porny. Less porny. So, you know, we'll get into the whole murdery parts next time. Yes. If you are cool to wait a week, hey, we're cool about it too. Yeah, like, that's your prerogative. Totally. But if you don't want to wait a week and you want to get to part two now, then just go on and either, you know, be already be a patron and listen or become a patron and listen. Yeah. If you're sitting there going, I don't want to wait. I'm not going to keep seeing it, but 
Yes. Then shoot on over there and get it. Get Get you some. Yeah. Otherwise, we will see you next time. Exactly. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Okay, you guys, we have some shout outs for new patrons. Yay, 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 yay. Thank you to Deanna Help, Jacqueline Mullen, Erica Vanover, Madison Ventrice, Rebecca, Alexis Turner, Wendy Strickland, Charity Ray, Jesse Crawford, Evelyn, Nicole Bell, Bailey Decker, Kems, Jim Casey, Taylor Neville, and Mary Payton. Oh my God, thank you guys so much. We love you. Yay. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show.